it's better for me when i write from a visceral place rather than a cerebral one i find myself a lot more liberated i find myself a lot more surprised Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweler, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. I met to speak with Indian poet Travana Hariharan, whose spare and resonant writing leaves the reader with a keen sense of the ghosts that we carry inside ourselves. Having begun publishing as a teenager, she has always had a precocious sense of the way we are haunted by generations past. When confronted with the imperfect but deep connections we have to our loved ones and the world around us, Trivana's poetry makes us feel seen and understood. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Travana. We're so happy to have you, and I'm sure our listeners will be too because your your Instagram page has become quite iconic lately. So I think it'll be exciting for our listeners to have the opportunity to listen to you. It's such a delight to be on on this podcast, really. I heard one or two episodes, and I loved loved um, both of them. Yes, you're welcome. So first of all, I think it'd be nice, a nice segue into our conversation to read one of your poems for our listeners, because I think that's always a nice soft landing for people, you know, out of their busy days when they're listening to something maybe on their drive home or on their way to work. So um, I wondered if you could read us your poem called Wound. Yes. Wound. The bulb round waist of spring figs, a bamboo sack bulging under the breasts of berries. Mother, I've always longed to know which part of your swelling pains you the most. It's a poem written for my mother. It's so beautiful. I'm assuming that you've read this to your mother? Yes, I have. What yeah. was her reaction? Um, she was uh, very moved. Uh, she didn't say very much after I read it out to her, but I remember her uh, eyes welled up a little. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. So, can you tell tell us a little bit about how you viewed your mother growing up, and how your perception of her has changed as you became a woman yourself? Right. Um, as a child. Um, my, I, I mean, my mother was like a friend to me, uh, like a companion, because uh, I spent most of my childhood with my mother. My father was out uh, most of the time uh, working and traveling. And so I had spent like 90% of my days with my mother. And uh, she never made me feel like she was an elder. It was a very unique relationship uh, in that sense, uh, because she always spoke to me like an equal even when I was five or six years old, she played games with me. We used to watch TV together. She was like a friend. She was like one of my friends. And I think I, I kind of took for granted the fact that she was always there for me. I mean, I, I felt like this is the person she's always been. 
I mean, as I grew older, uh, grew into woman, like you said, I started to realize that she was a person independent of the roles she had been playing thus far, a friend, a wife, a mother. All of those layers started to kind of crack through a little bit. I started to see her for the person that she may have been, the dreams that she may have given up on in order to be there for me, be there with me. Or I started to see her as a person, uh, you know, in a way that I hadn't in my childhood, uh, mostly because she never really spoke about the sacrifices that she'd made to be there for me. She never demonstrated them. So, um, I, I mean, one ends up taking those for granted. Uh, it was always very unannounced. And so as I grew older, especially when I started to study literature and uh, started to, to, to see more closely mothers in literature, women in literature, is when I really began to think about what life may have been like, uh, what life may have been for her before me, before the marriage. I began to talk to her about it, about what she wanted to do, about where she wanted to be. And, um, you know, I think it, it just became, our relationship became a lot richer uh, uh, because we could speak of the things that, about even absences, about even losses, about ghosts that were sitting right between us as we were speaking. I mean, in, in my childhood, it always felt very Edenic and very complete. It's when I started to realize the incompleteness, the absences, the pores between our relationship, the fact that things were not so tidy, not so complete, that things were dark in places. She'd had her fair share of really unpleasant life experiences. It's, it's when I started realizing the, the absences, the ghosts, the darknesses, that the relationship strangely became richer, more intimate over the years. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So she wasn't so defined by a role, but right. more like her human, her humanness. Right. Yeah, I think that's a big switch when you become an adult and you realize your parents are imperfect and they didn't come with a guidebook and they were yeah. people before us. Because we right. think, you know, we're egotistical kids and we think this is all about me, but actually yeah. there was this whole person before us. Right. So what other kinds of familial relationships have you, have you explored through your poetry other than your mother? For example, how has writing altered your relationship to your family or reading other people's experiences in a family unit? Right. I haven't written so much about the men in my family. I think that's something I should look into. But I've written a great deal lot about my maternal grandmother and my paternal grandmother. And my mother, of course. Uh, but I've written extensively about the women in my family. And I think that that's something to do with the fact that those are the voices that I felt needed to be spoken through and spoken from and spoken about largely because of how absent they had been, uh, not to me, but uh, strangely to the world, because they were never really out there in the world in the same way that my father and my grandfather were. So I think subconsciously I started writing a lot more about the women. 
I have written a great deal about my uh, paternal grandmother, who I happened to lose very early in my life. I think I was uh, around five or six years old. And I think that that's also my first memory of death um, and of uh, my first encounter with the experience of losing somebody to mortality. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, a huge reason why I keep going back to that experience is also because it was my first brush with the idea of what death actually was. And I didn't really understand what had happened at that point. I mean, you know, Derrida has this concept of ontology in which he talks about the fact that ghosts belong to the past, but they actually manifest in the present. And I think that's deeply true. Ghosts are very much of the present, even though they belong in the past. Realize that there is um, almost an ongoing quality to death um, in the sense that it never really ends with the ending. The finality is just sort of like a threshold uh, into a whole new world that's as yet unexplored. And I, I realized that even more so in my writing about mortality and about death, the more I write about it, my experience of losing my loved ones, I realized that the story is just beginning and that there's something I'm missing. There are some voices, there are, there are some experiences, some memories that I've yet to catch the threads of. So I somehow keep coming back to it, which means that there is an ongoing, continuous quality to it. You know, so I've written a great deal lot about the experience, the day that I lost her in particular, you know, because that somehow seems to keep playing out in my mind. I, I, I've written about it in the past tense, in the present tense. And um, I always think, you know, in your, it's like a knot. Uh, you know, and, and writing helps you undo knots that you cannot sometimes undo in real time, in, in present. Because how do you go back to chapters that have been closed forever? Uh, you cannot. So, so those are knots that have been made forever. But in writing, you can undo those knots and begin to see where they go in, in both directions, past as well as future. And it's that's when you realize that this is a this is the minute you undo the knot, you realize that there's a whole path for you to trail, so many more ghosts to account for, so many more voices, uh, both in your family as well as women at large, families at large. Every time I end a poem, I begin to think that there's another poem in here right mm-hmm. after this. So obviously reading your poetry, there are, I can see that there are many references to nature and particular environments and flora and fauna. Are these living things that you have a personal connection to or are they more of a sort of a symbolic or fantastical inner landscape? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, it's something that I think about often as well in my own writing. I think it's a bit of both. I feel very deeply grounded in the natural world. I love being in nature. It's healing. It is uh, restorative on another level. Uh, It brings me back to my body 
which I find difficult to do. Um, uh, or, 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 I mean, in, in certain situations, it brings me back to the home of my body, to the center of my body. Uh, so there is a, a personal connection to uh, the flora and fauna that I've grown up around, the animals, the birds. I've been particularly sensitive to the birds. I uh, was an avid bird watcher in my childhood. I uh, used to record the sounds of birds in my neighborhood. Um, I was almost obsessed, actually. I was borderline obsessed to the point that uh, I started missing out on my homework and uh, other academic things in order to go out and uh, observe birds. But I also think that the representation of the flora and the fauna in the writing are ultimately transformed by the landscape of imagination. So there is a fantastical landscape that that, that comes into play um, uh, by default. And I don't know why that is. Um, I think it's because, I've I, I tried to think about this. I think it's because it's um, it's a threshold of it's it's a it's a threshold of otherness for me. I thought about this otherness when I I mean when I say otherness, I mean a certain kind of uh, I I don't mean it in an alienating way. I mean otherness that pulls me into a world that I've never lived before, that I've never inhabited before, that both pulls me out of my familiarity, but also lands me in a very grounded, wondrous place. Uh, it's it's a very strange, dichotomous relationship. Uh, it's a place where I feel like I can lose myself only to begin all over again. Like, I remember this one uh, point in um, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, uh, where Alice gets lost in a forest and that's the first time that she loses hold of the signifiers that she uses in her human world in order to navigate her relationship because in order to navigate her relationships because those signifiers those words that language does not work in the woods the woods demands a different language almost a different way of being out of you uh, it makes you into a different being almost if you're that immersed uh, in uh, the, the the thrall of it. And that's what I find really powerful. Uh, the fact that it can disorient you to a point where you forget all your signifiers. Um, uh, you know, there's this wonderful book called Peregrine by J.A. Baker. And he speaks about how um, he used to go out every single day uh, out into the woods to observe the peregrines. And uh, he says that with every passing day, he lost touch with who he was and he felt like he was transforming into the peregrine itself in the act of viewing it. So, you know, when you're obsessed with nature, I think that's what happens. You start transforming subconsciously into the thing that you're into, the lies, into the beings that you're observing. The lines between self and other become very blurred. And that's what I find so powerful. Uh, and uh, I think that 
I like losing sense of who I am also because that helps me a lot as a writer. I think of writing very much as being in a forest as being in almost like a fantastical landscape uh, as you said mm-hmm. in your question and the joy of it is not knowing what you're going to write but being surprised almost shocked sometimes by what's going to come up it's actually writing is an act of co-creation it's not just a monologue spilling over into uh, onto the page and invariably everything gets transformed uh in the process of writing so 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 it's almost exactly like like being in nature uh it's disorienting but it's disorienting in a way that provides you a threshold into wonder and i love that both about nature and about writing i love that yeah so can we talk about like the connections you found between writing and playing the piano because i think that's also one of your other great loves yes um so i mean i i used to play the keyboard for the longest time uh, i switched to piano only a couple of years ago but i think that the one similarity i find between both of the forms of art is that they require all of your body uh both of them are very bodily physical acts even though it may not seem like that the piano requires all of your body your legs um on the pedal um your hands uh, of course uh, your mind all of it writing for me i've discovered over the years is not largely an act of the mind it's actually an act of the body and it's better for me when i write from a visceral place rather than a cerebral one I find myself a lot more liberated I find myself a lot more surprised and so that's a similar uh, thread that's a common thread both of them require all of your body uh, and all of your consciousness and its meanderings the other similarity is that um both of them and I think that this may be true of any art form uh but both of them require a uh, a complete surrender at least of me uh i feel at least in my experience uh i cannot write if i haven't fully surrendered to the moment and to the page uh and similarly i cannot play the piano without fully listening to what the notes are saying to me so it's actually me being born out of what the art is making of me rather than me imposing something on it uh i almost find myself being uh born from it really so uh it's and so that requires starting from scratch every single time starting from scratch as in of course you know what you've done before but you've got to come with nothing so that uh you can make something of i i can't come with too much baggage for for either 
no matter how many compositions I've made in the past or how much I've written in the past, I always feel like I'm beginning for the first time every time. So both of them require that you begin for the first time every time, that you're born from what's being made, uh, being born from the experience that you're having with the art form rather than coming with an already accumulated set of experiences that you're then going to impose as a kind of thumb, uh, as a kind of blueprint uh, onto, onto uh, both the text, I mean, both the music as well as the blank page. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. I, by the way, I come from a family of p- pianists, so I understand wow. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Also, I find it really interesting that you started publishing work in your early teens. It's quite unusual. What was your experience having public attention on your work from such a young age? Do you find that it affected your writing at all? So I didn't think about that until much later. I I think I started publishing when I was in the sixth standard uh, or around that age. How old is that? 10, 11 plus. It's quite young. <laughs> yes, it's, it's quite young. At that time, it felt like play almost because I had also just about discovered the internet. So um, it didn't really feel very separate from that. I just, uh, mm. you know, started putting... Also, these weren't exceptionally popular magazines, so it wasn't like they were reaching out to a lot of people. Uh, but they were reaching out to some people, of course, and they were, there were comments uh, and there were both good and bad things said about the work. At that time, strangely, it did not affect me at all. I had no bearing on my writing uh, because it just felt like play. Uh, it felt like I was doing this thing and then I was, you know, uh, you know, like how you are in school. You make a project and then you're told to stand in front of the class, show it to everybody. It's fun. It's uh, joy. And I, I never t- took the bad things uh, said to heart, uh, strangely enough. I always felt very detached from what was said about my work. Uh, I could I could kind of completely dissociate from thoughts about my work, uh, even at that time. You know, the work of art was separate from what was said about it. Uh, and I could analyze what was said about it just for what it was without personalizing it. So that was all right. I think that what it does is that it sometimes leaves behind stuff that you don't want to be seen in the public domain anymore, especially, you know, since you grow as a writer over the years. Who I was when I was 10 years old and what I wrote at that age, I've, of course, grown a lot from then. And so some of the stuff, it's still all there in the public domain. Uh, and so I kind of look back at that and cringe a little bit. <laughs> we all do on our past work a little bit. Yeah, and so so there's that. But uh, I was recently having a conversation with a friend and I realized that what it's also done is that it has archived those moments forever. And I'm kind of glad for that now in the sense that however it may seem to me now it was my truth in that moment and it's archived my truth in that particular age 
any moment. And that's something. Uh, and so, notwithstanding the merit aspect of it, I think that there is uh, something nice about having different stages of your life and who you were, the person you were in those stages of your life archived in that way. And to then see uh, what your trajectory has been because where you are today is ultimately not independent of who you were at that time. And it gives me something to look back at. And it gives me something to, um, it, it, it's, it's, they were almost like journal entries that are now out in the public domain, uh, you know, because at that time, one also doesn't have an exact sense of what's meant to be published and, you know, what's not meant to be published. You know, one sense of de uh, editing also develops, I think, much later in life. You know, they're all there, unedited, unfiltered. <clears throat> but it's interesting to see those as a part of my trajectory and realize, I, I kind of say it, it, it takes me back to a memory of those times, if not those times themselves. And when I look back at them with a certain distance in retrospect, I can almost have a conversation with them, which can then provide fodder for my future work. So I've kind of learned how to use that feeling productively, even of the embarrassment, even of, you know, sometimes the not so pleasant feelings that I have looking back at my work. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it also makes me question my present self. Like if I say I find that juvenile, then what is the metric that I'm comparing it to? What am I playing it against? What is making me see something as juvenile? Uh, and is it at all correct to see something with that lens? You know, uh, just because you've gained more experiences, you've accumulated more experiences. So it's almost like a mirror self talking back to you, a mirror self from the past talking back to you and also giving you a little bit of a reality check about your present, which I think is, is interesting. Yeah, I feel like you should do a retrospective at some point with all of your works together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be really interesting. Yeah, it would be. So I would like, if, if you wouldn't mind reading us your poem, Salvation Plea. Yes. This was a poem um, published in this magazine called The Thames Review. It's called Salvation Poem. O rain, coasting inside the earth, do not fail my body. Lick me like wool. Rend me unknowable. Bear me in the sap of your wings. Wrench me from the worms, luggaging my hurt. Tell me how to seep into a cave found God. A fox preening its wanton fingers. Is there a way not to ashen into light? A way for the body to evade? Into my dog-stained hurts, 
a raindrop oozes from my fingers. I have relented, unlaced in dread. My body will be spared. I too have seen something unlaced. Beautiful. So you write, um, is there a way for the body to evade? My body will be spared. I too have sown something unnameable. Much of your work I've noticed ruminates on a complex relationship to one's own body or anxiety about others' bodies. And I'm wondering if you've pro- how have you processed your relationship to bodies through your work and what are some of the things you feel that you're still sorting? A lot. Um, in fact, most of my work, and I think that the core of my work is centered around the body, the female body in particular, also the gender queer body and other queer bodies, and the anxieties of the body, like you mentioned. It's not something that I I've thought about very much, to be frank, because like I said, uh, when I'm writing, it's almost like a trance-like state. Uh, One kind of is swept along by what comes up. But absolutely, most of my work tends to be about the body. Uh, That's a common pattern. That's a theme. So you're right, absolutely right in that observation. I think that it's something to do with not feeling entirely at home in my body, feeling almost othered by my body. And I cannot credit that feeling entirely to just an internal sense of anxiety. It's got a lot to do with the way in which the female body is perceived at large by the society. So there is an overlap between the two to a point uh, where you don't even realize where your anxieties are coming from, if they're coming from within yourself or if they're stemming from being seen in a particular way by others that you then internalize and play out for yourself. Uh, I have felt alienated, almost othered by my body, like I said before, on various occasions and by that I mean that I feel like I do not fully belong in my body or that I do not have the right to fully belong in my body and that's been a recurrent anxiety for me which is why it plays out over and over again in my work I think because a lot of the work is about the want and the need to reclaim the body as I want to see my body. Which is why a lot of these poems uh, are also addresses to God. Uh, There's another poem uh, of mine, uh, which is sort of similar to this one, but is a direct call to God. It's that sense of kind of Navigating my own body but and navigating my inner world, but not independent of the outer world, uh, because that's never possible. You can't exist in a vacuum. Uh, you can't exist on an island. That's just not possible. Even uh, 
the declamation of your singularity has to be placed within and is invariably placed within a much larger socio-cultural context uh, and a much larger world because the body cannot exist, like I said, in a vacuum and it should not. But I have been thinking a great deal lot about something that John Berger says, actually, in his book called G. He talks about uh, the, the duality of uh, the female experience and he says that female bodies and perhaps queer bodies uh, do not just observe, do not just observe themselves from an internal place. Uh, they also see the ways in which they are being seen. So that you already have multiple layers of perspectives. You're not just observing, but you're also observing the ways in which you are being observed. And that's a very different experience from observing, just observing the world uh, from a place of harmony. When you see the ways in which you're being seen, there's already a sense of multitudes that you're inviting into yourself, some that you do not wish for. There's already a sense of anxiety that you've induced in your body uh, and in your inner world. Uh, uh, and this is this is poem by Adiva Shahid Talukdar that I keep going back to often in a book called Shahre Jahanan, uh, The City of the Beloved. She talks about a woman wearing bangles. It's, it's a beautiful opening line. I'm just summarizing it. And she talks about how she feels more like a woman when she crushes those bangles and feels the blood. And that to me always signifies the duality, almost the violence of being a woman sometimes in the sense that there are certain moments in which you're expected to perform womanhood, wearing those bangles, for instance. It's so hard to tell, it becomes at a point so hard to tell what it is that you want and the desires that you want to inhabit and the body that you want to inhabit and the body that the world at large expects a woman to inhabit. Uh, so are these bangles that I'm wearing giving me joy or am I wearing them in order to be seen more as quote-unquote a woman? There's always um, friction between what you want and what's wanted of you and then how you mold your desires as per that and internalize those desires of your own and uh, how certain moments are supposed to make you feel more like a woman uh, than others. There are certain gestures that one is some, somehow forced uh, to in order to perform, uh, you know, uh, and this is one of those, uh, uh, you know, wearing your bangles, wearing your wheels, uh, wearing certain colors. And so to me, it always speaks of the violence of seeing and of being seen in particular moments. 
but I'm also fascinated by the ways in which observation can help us reclaim ourselves in the sense that when I become the person who takes a step back to think about what's happening to me rather than inhabiting the experience of being written over or being dominated or being inflicted violence upon, when I take a step back from those and look upon what it is that I'm doing in those moments is when it becomes a little interesting, is when I begin to feel like I can now reclaim some of what was lost in that moment to that other person who was expecting something of me. I've written another poem, if if you want me to read that, that's kind of like a, a perspective on, on what I'm talking about. Yeah, I was going to say that's a nice segue because even though I would love to keep talking for many hours... Yeah. We've reached our final question. Um, yeah. And obviously I think a nice conclusion would, to me it feels like your poetry is quite an act of rebellion. Yeah. yeah. Which I love. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to ask if you would read us um, an excerpt or a full poem. And so I think it's it seems fitting that you read us the one you just mentioned. Right. This is published in Clock Journal. And um, it's called A Dream in Which the Body Reclaims Its Fragmentation. Severed, my body is taken to a temple for resurrection. The priest breathes up a story from the smoke of a coal-lipped threshold. He explains, a green-talent bird has grabbed you by your braid. You should have been more careful of where you were heading. Worn a veil, closed your eyes, freed your hair of all flowers. I love under my way, secretly liking this story. Playing along, I tell him that I split my foot at a tree's stump fell unconscious while drinking well water. But no narrative ever fits completely, frozen as a wormhole waiting for inhabitation. What I don't say, however, is how free my body feels in this fever, staggering here, smothered to redness. My body showing like the swollen bust of an oak. What I want to say is that I will never come back. Father, don't wrap me into a body. There was no witch bird, no tree. I did it of my own knowing. I asked myself of my own knowing. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Travana. Thank you so much for having me. We all look forward to seeing you on our next trip to India in Delhi and you can take us to some of your favourite spots. I would love that. If you're ever in Australia or, or in Istanbul, please let me know. I would love to. That's a place that I've been wanting to visit.
This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fecho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I think it's good to know if you want kids or not. And I think people who don't want kids and being like strong in that conviction, we don't need more shitty parents and we don't need more kids who feel like they had shitty parents. So don't have kids. Like, that's awesome. Until next time, stay curious.